streetcar is about as potent a political third rail as you can get in Cincinnati, but you can't argue with its results. Though, five years ago, things were looking pretty hairy. Also on the podcast, the desserts of selling out. What's going to happen to a Cleveland Craft Brewery's OTR space now that its owner, Anheuser-Busch, has shuttered the brewery? This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by managing editor Tom Nemeropoulos. Morning, Tom. Good morning, Andy. Happy to be here. I guess I can't really call it morning because we're recording this in the afternoon after a very auspicious date at the Cincinnati Business Courier. One of our most beloved holidays, Steve Day. Yes, waiting to take Steve Day National, I think. I think we should first get the city of Cincinnati to make it a holiday, and then the state, and then after that happens, Kentucky and Indiana will want to join in, and eventually the whole nation will celebrate Steve Day. And then the Steves will, would be most chuffed by that. So Steves, Lanier, and Watkins both work at the Business Courier, long-tenured long colleagues, and just happen to have birthdays that are separated by one day. Well, the birthdays are two days apart, but we celebrate Steve Day for the two of them in the middle of that. And it's tradition on Steve Day to each give each of the Steves one beer apiece. It's, it's their weekly ration. And then uh, you know, Steve Lanier, he's a designer for us. He will, he will graft his and other Steve's faces onto to movie posters in celebration of the holiday. And this year it was Spider-Man No Way Home. And years past, it's been things like Cobra Kai and The Mandalorian. Yes. Love our celebration of Steve Day. Yeah. So this is actually something of a milestone for us. This is our 20th podcast. And it, it, it feels like a feat. I know 20 episodes of of podcasting is probably not that much in the grand scheme of things, but considering as this point last year, this is just an idea. I'm, I'm kind of proud of us. And you should be, Andy. This has been a, a great uh, a great addition to what we do here at the Business Courier. And we've had a pretty stacked guest list so far. I mean, last week we had Jeff Birding, we had Steve Lieber, we've had uh, Thane Maynard at the zoo, one of my personal favorites. Molly North, CRE uh, leader at Helen Iyer. All sorts of a who's who here at the uh, at Above the Fold. Yeah, and we want to keep bringing these guests. And if you have any suggestions of people you'd like to hear, just feedback in general, please reach out to me, abrownfield at bizjournals.com. So five years ago this month was a pretty sorry time for the streetcar. I'm sure some of you listeners will remember it, but there were ice on the power lines, which meant that a semi-truck had to tow the streetcar, completely empty and without riders, along the entire track to clear it off. And it even had its own police escort. Now, I remember when the f- streetcar was first planned. I was in college at the time, and I went through a roller coaster of reactions from, isn't it cool that Cincinnati is finally getting rail, to, gosh, the track is so short that it won't really take you very far, will it? I think the Daily Newspaper even had a reporter walk the proposed track to see how long it would take, and then came to the conclusion that the streetcar wouldn't really be much faster. It wasn't until it was explained to me that the streetcar is more of a driver of economic development than simply a people mover that I think I finally got it. I mean, this is fixed infrastructure. Those tracks are in the ground for good, and if you invest along that route, you'll be able to count on carriages full of people being exposed to your business. The streetcar delivered on the economic development part of its initial promise, but that carriages full of people part was a bit iffy until recently, as Chris Wetterick wrote in our most recent cover story. Yeah, Andy, the, uh, I, I remember when we wrote about the economic development angle, Chris and I worked together on that story, kind of taking a look at the, at the route and all of the development that was taking place along it. And, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of development was coming to the, the area immediately adjacent to 
the streetcar track. Uh, but the ridership had always kind of been, I guess, it just never hit the numbers that they thought it was going to hit. And it was not the easiest process, if you remember, sharing when you had to pay to get on the streetcar. That was a kind of an ordeal. It was difficult. It wasn't clear where to where to get your ticket, how to, how much it cost, how long you'd be able to ride. Or even really how to present the tickets. I mean, sometimes they would have. There, there's nobody. It's not like a, a European train where you've got a conductor walking up and down the aisles checking your tickets. I mean, sometimes there's a police officer on there who would check your app or your ticket. But like you said... You either had to get a ticket from the app that you could also buy a ticket for the Metro buses on, or you'd have to buy them from a kiosk that was at each station. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's there's no place to put your ticket in when you get on the, the you know, the car. But now we're seeing that ridership, now that the streetcar has become free to ride, it's it's really kind of exploded. I think that's the only fair word to use. The ridership has, has jumped up uh, in recent years. Yeah, from the first year of operation in 2016, there were 260,000 riders that year. And you, you would expect that would be a pretty big year for them being the first year in operation. It's new, it's exciting, it's shiny. The low point was 166,000, which happened in 2020. But of course, the, the pandemic explains that as it was closed most of the year. But last year, it reached an all-time high of 846,000 riders. And that comes at a time where nationally, most transit systems are suffering. I mean, the median, they're down 40%. And even Metro's bus ridership is down about 32%. So to see this kind of just, as you said, explosion in streetcar riders is kind of astonishing. Yeah, and what's really impressive here is the system's ridership growth. Chris looked at where it was in 2019, so pre-pandemic, and judged it you know, based on that. The system's ridership is up 60%. That is incredible growth. It really is. And considering just that, like how much political opposition that the streetcar faced throughout the entire process of planning and even up to voting on it. They already had some tracks in the ground and voting on continuing funding for it. Now, um, expansion, as Chris writes in a, a, a lovely uh, literary illusion, during most recent years was kind of akin to the Harry Potter villain Voldemort. It's that which should not be named. But he did take a look in this story about potential routes for expansion, uh, everything from taking it down to northern Kentucky or out to Union Terminal, even up to Walnut Hills or Uptown. Yeah, I think I think initially when the streetcar was planned, there was a route to go up to Uptown. And the idea was you would connect these two, these two main areas of employment, Uptown with the hospitals and the university with downtown. And that didn't come together. But I think if, if we were to expand, I think that would be one of the things I would be looking at what I would hope this would do. I hope it would connect two areas of, of density of action where you would be able to, or you would want to go to one from the other. So from Northern Kentucky to downtown, like I think that would be a great, a great mover of people going up to Walnut Hills as that area has redeveloped and has become kind of its own second city again, its own second downtown. That would be a great route. Yeah, as someone like my my most fruitful beat is restaurants. So a lot of the restaurateurs I'll meet with are in over the Rhine, and it's the streetcar passes right within a block of our the front door to our office. So it's incredibly convenient to see it coming down one way, and I've got just enough time to walk over to the stop and hop on. The only thing I miss though is Nick Lachey's voice announcing the stops. <laughs> 
Now, our second story today could be seen as a cautionary tale, or at least that's the way it's being viewed by our local craft brewing scene. Now, you're familiar with Cleveland's Platform Beer Company, right, Tom? Very familiar. They happen to brew one of my favorite beers in Hayes Jude, and then probably my all-time favorite seasonal beer was Yule Jude, which was a hazy IPA with blood orange and spices in it. It, it was phenomenal. So then I'm sure this next story hurt you personally. Now, Platform was founded in 2014, and it was founded as an incubator brewery where people interested in the craft brewing business could learn the ropes in a low-stakes environment. But that proved so popular that it shifted into a craft brewery in its own right and got big enough to be eventually purchased by beer giant Anheuser-Busch. Now, Cleveland Media is reporting that the brewing operations at Platform have ceased, and Luckily for you, three of its beers are being kept alive, including Hayes Jude. Whew. Okay. <laughs> We're okay. But it's not it's not quite, quite clear where those brews, beers are going to be brewed or by whom. I mean, Anheuser-Busch is the largest beer company on the planet, and it's got breweries and operations all over the place. Now, increasing the number of questions is what's going to happen to Lokoba by Platform, which opened 2019 in a pretty prominent space in Over the Rhine. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, they've got a great space there on Main Street, and what developers and 3CDC in the city like to see is full storefronts. So having a storefront sit empty is definitely not uh, ideal for urban sites or the city at this point in time. No, and Locoba has been closed since April of 2022. There was a sign in the window reading that the concept was being evaluated, and Throughout the, the months after that, I'd been reaching out to Anheuser-Busch on a monthly basis asking for updates, and it was complete radio silence, and I guess now we see why. Yeah, this probably also explains why they didn't put out Yule Jude this year. I'm, I'm thinking that might, you know, they might have had more important things to worry about than making my favorite holiday beer. <laughs> and now I'm kicking myself for never having a chance to try it. So I talked with Danny Lipson, who's the chief developer of Urban Sites, which is the the developer who is is leasing that space. They're Locoba's landlord. And he said that they have an active lease with Anheuser-Busch for 10 years. And that lease was signed in 2018. And Danny said that they really want to see that space, as you said, activated, because that is kind of the gateway into Main Street and over the Rhine. So I don't think we can understate just what a catastrophe the train derailment in East Palestine was early this month. If you've been on a media fast or in a hermitage or embracing your inner Luddite, a Norfolk Southern train derailed, spilling more than 100,000 gallons of vinyl chloride, a massively toxic chemical, which created a huge plume over the city and major leakages into waterways. Now that has had impact that's reverberated all the way down here to Cincinnati as well. Norfolk Southern last year made a bid to buy the Cincinnati Southern Railway for $1.6 billion, and that derailment kind of cast a pall over the deal. Now, I don't want to imply that there's any connection between the derailment and the potential sale, but you can kind of see how it would create a sort of political consternation in City Hall. Absolutely, Andy. I think that these two, the timing for trying to sell this asset with this derailment in East Palestine probably could not have been worse for the city, for those who are advocating for its sale, because it's very top of mind for everyone right now that, you know, are was Norfolk Southern doing the right thing? Were they operating their train safely? What happens if something were to happen on our railway? Uh, who Who's at fault? Would, would the city be liable? And people start to think, what kind of regulations can the city imply or implore to make sure that they're operating safely? Do they have more control if they own the railway versus lease it? So it's a huge question. Yeah, and it's it's 
you know, fair to say, one of the biggest news stories in the nation now and continues to be. So City Council last week passed a resolution calling for increased safety measures on railroads. It proclaimed support for East Palestine, calls for a federal investigation on the accident, and said the government should implement more safety measures on railroads, including improved braking systems, better labor conditions, and more inspections. Now, this is mostly symbolic, because state and federal governments regulate the railroads, not municipalities, but the sale has to be approved by voters, which is who this resolution is very likely targeting. And, you know, we should note that the Cincinnati Southern Railway runs through Cincinnati, but it's only a small portion of it, mostly through Kentucky and Tennessee to the terminus in Chattanooga. Now, separately, former Ohio legislator Tom Brinkman Jr. is suing the board in charge of the railway over the potential sale. His lawsuit claims that discussions surrounding the sale occurred in violation of open meetings laws. The board met in executive session on November 21st of last year to discuss the sale, which Ohio law permits bodies to discuss the the sale of public property in executive session, which is closed to the public. But Brinkman claims that this particular meeting, because it was initially about the railroad's lease, not the sale, does not apply to those executive session rules. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting interesting one to watch, Andy, because I think, you know, for a long time, the Cincinnati Southern Railway Board met regularly as they were supposed to and it was one of those things where no one really paid attention to it because the length of the lease was so long that it wasn't on anyone's mind because nothing's going to change I i think it was a 25 year lease if i remember correctly so you know, it, we're in year 20-ish of those. Well, what's going to change between now and, you know, the next five years? Is there a reason to send a reporter to go sit and listen to these meetings? I, th- I think this is just one of the things that people weren't necessarily paying attention to. And now they are. Now they're very focused on it. Yeah, the city was getting about $25 million per year from the lease. And there were kind of negotiations to bring it up to $65 million when the sale was kind of put on the table. And, and Cincinnati stands to gain $1.6 billion from the sale, which would create a trust fund that would deliver $88 million in investment returns in the first year, $56 million of which would go to the repair or replacement of existing infrastructure. And Cincinnati faces a $340 million capital deficit. So, Tom, last year you wrote about plans for a 12-story apartment tower at the corner of Central Parkway and Vine. Right where that building with Jim, Mr. Cincinnati, Tarbell's mural is. Now that building is listed for sale or lease, so surely that doesn't mean those plans are dead. Not yet. Uh, yeah, those, those plans are not dead at this point in time. As our reporter, Abby Miller, wrote for us last week, this is a development from uh, Shift Capital Group. It's a Columbus-based developer who uh, has you know, built a number of projects in, in the capital, but is also interested in Cincinnati. And initially, he was looking for about 72 apartments, parking garage, and then some restaurant spaces, some ground floor restaurant spaces, and then like kind of a rooftop restaurant space. But he's continuing to evaluate that site and also kind of at this point looking for maybe a partner locally to help him with that project. See, I was definitely setting you up for an airplane reference there. The plans are not dead, and don't call me Shirley. No, uh, Abby reported that uh, the plans are not dead. He is looking for uh, someone, a developer, to buy the property or who's interested in a joint development agreement, and he's kind of beefing up the, the plans from 72 possible apartments to 80 to 100 and a parking garage, and he's keeping in into the plans the, the, idea, the idea of a rooftop lounge or restaurant as well as the street-level storefront space. So, Tom, why is this property so important? You know, Andy, this is one of those great pieces of property along Central Parkway that is not 
as fully activated as it should be. One of the things that 3CDC talks about all the time is having these you know spaces activated from Fountain Square all the way up through Vine Street in over the Rhine, and that that section right there isn't being used right now. It used to be the home to Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority. Their headquarters was there. They haven't been there for years, so it's an empty building, a vacant space, so bringing life and activity and vibrancy to that building with residents and retail would just be a huge boon. It also would help really connect the activity between what's happening in Over the Rhine and what's now happening on Court Street. Yeah, Court Street has gone undergone a huge boom in recent years. It, really, in the recent year. With 3CDC's Court Street Plaza plans that have kind of widened the usable space there for the public and uh, renovated a bunch of storefronts and buildings there, you've seen restaurants like Mid-City pop up. There's a um, the Pilar, the the new bar by 4EG coming over there, the Onalicious Hawaiian. And then I just wrote last week about Court Street Kitchen, which is going to be kind of aiming for a more upscale experience, but in a laid back and casual atmosphere. So there's a lot going on and it's really going to kind of aim to create a contiguous, you know, you don't have to go to the banks or go to downtown or go to over the Rhine. You can really extend your stay all throughout Cincinnati's urban basin and find stuff to do. Yeah. And this residence, that would be a very nice walk for them just down to Court Street from, uh, from Central Parkway. Absolutely. So, Tom, we are both millennials uh, of substantially similar age, and I feel like there's kind of this expectation that, you know, at some point we will grow out of childish things. Like, I feel like there's this view that, say, video games are a thing that people will grow out of. They're, they're for children. They're, they're kids' stuff. And, you know, I hate to say that I think, like, some things I just don't want to give up. I am right there with you, Andy. I will not give up video games. Yeah, no, another thing that I grew up loving, and I, I still haven't found a way to incorporate this into my adult life, is, like, Legos. Like, I remember going over to a friend's house, and we would just play with Legos all afternoon. And that's something we're not going to have to give up, because the Brickery Cafe and Play is coming to Newport this summer. Newport on the levee. It's going to be located next to Velocity Esports, also video games in the main gallery building of Newport on the Levee, and it's going to have three main components, a play and discovery area full of Lego bricks, which is meant for children, but, you know, I'm bigger than them, (laughs) a cafe that serves light refreshments like flavored sodas, mocktails, coffee, beverages, pastries, and popcorn, and then a retail space with new and used Legos for sale. It's going to have a storefront with massive windows depicting moving Lego sculptures of local landmarks. Is Lego having a moment, or I, I? So I'm I'm biased because both of my kids love to play with Lego, and they love the TV show Lego Masters. So there's a lot of Lego happening at my house. I assume that's happening in a lot of other places as well. Leg, is Lego having a moment? I think so. I is that the show that's hosted by Will Arnett? It is. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, I see a lot of clips on TikTok of all places. <laughs> I think Lego might be having a moment. Now, fun fact, the largest Lego sculpture ever is a 13-meter-high version of London's Tower Bridge made with 5.8 million individual bricks. Now, in freedom units, 13 meters is about 42 and a half feet. <laughs> I've got a bucket list Lego set myself. I want the Millennium Falcon that's 7,541 pieces and includes a young Han Solo, an old Han Solo, Chewbacca, C-3PO, and Finn and Rey from the new trilogy. Now, the only problem is it retails for $850. Ooh. 
that's going to be a hard one to explain on the old credit card bill. Yeah. So this week on the podcast, we've got Brady Duncan, co-founder of Cincinnati's Madry Brewing. Madry is Cincinnati's second largest craft brewery and just hosted its 10-year anniversary bash on February 25th. It's part of a group of breweries that were all founded between 2012 and 2014 that really kicked off the explosion of craft beer in Cincinnati, alongside breweries like Rheingeist, Braxton, and 50 West. Brady talks with us about losing and regaining his craft beer mojo, how Mantry is embracing more than just beer, and what the brewery has planned for its third location. This is Brady Duncan on Above the Fold. I think I've got the equipment. You have podcasting equipment in your cabin? Well, I have recording equipment, and I'm, it's a condenser mic, so it wouldn't sound as good as this. I don't know. These are like, yeah. these are like three for $75 on Amazon. Yeah, yeah maybe it would sound better then. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. Which one is, I think you're number two. I'm turning up a little bit. Yeah, so uh, cabin out in Madisonville? It's bizarre. It's super cool, though. So I, I moved here in 2008 on this little street called Collinwood. It's like less than a mile from the brewery. And for about the first year, I didn't know this little cabin was at the end of the street. The wife had died. The husband got dementia. It was a beautiful, it only sits on an acre, but it's like surrounded like two sides by woods. So they had this little cabin that they kind of let fall into disrepair. So we bought the house, rehabbed the shit out of the house, ran out of money. And then I just rehabbed the cabin like a year ago. That's amazing. It's a special place. So, yeah. Nice. Like, so during the summer when all the trees kind of growing on our property, like you can't even like see my house. And, I mean, it's only, the house is not that far. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's only great. an acre. Yeah, it's cool. I've always wanted, it's always been kind of my dream to live in an area where you can't see your neighbors. And yeah. it's just like you've got, I don't need a whole lot of land, but just enough where I can feel secluded and like I'm, I don't know, somewhere away from it all. Yeah. During the winter, I or summer, I can kind of get that feel when all the trees grow in. Yeah. Right now, though, I can see everyone. So. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I, I've, I've, you know, kind of play that game of like looking at houses on Zillow and just fantasizing and yep. like, Oh man, maybe Batavia doesn't look that bad. <laughs> I feel like that's like, what's that's like the new, like 35 to 45 year old trend is like moving out to like, not just the burbs, like farmland. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, after watching the last of us, man, that might not be a bad idea. The last of us. Oh, it's on HBO. It's, it's, uh, it was the video game on PlayStation. They turned it into okay. a TV show on HBO. Cool. It's, it's essentially zombies, but instead of a virus, it's a fungus. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, Matry just celebrated its 10th anniversary. You guys were part of that class of 2013 that it appears yep. like is, is really kind of shaped the brewing scene in Cincinnati. Yep. Well, what are some of your biggest takeaways? And have you seen the industry change in the last 10 years? Man... Yeah, well, first off, appreciate you you guys having me here. This is uh, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's changed a lot. You know, I think it, part of our kind of vision from the beginning, and I don't know that we expressly said this, but, you know, Jeff, Kenny, and I, right, the other two co-founders, Jeff's no longer with the business, but Kenny and I still run the business day to day. We were traveling out to like San Diego, Portland, Asheville, all these cool, Michigan, all these cool beer towns. And we were seeing like the culture and the community that was building around this. And we were like, Cincinnati doesn't have that. Hmm. What we do have is this amazing German beer heritage, which I love and respect, but didn't necessarily identify with. And I think there was like this whole new movement that I felt like wasn't necessarily catching in Cincinnati. Um, And yeah, you're right. 2000, kind of late 12, 13 was, I believe, kind of the spark. And I do think we were 
we were kind of the, I think the match that kind of lit that, right? We opened shortly after 50 West and Blank Slate, mm-hmm. and then shortly before Rheingeist. So I think kind of the three, four of us, obviously Blank Slate's no longer around, but between 50, Rheingeist and us, I think we were kind of the three that kind of ushered in this kind of new era uh, of craft beer, but it's it looks completely different now, right? We were 2,400 craft breweries in the U.S. when we opened. I think we were number eight or nine locally, um, and that would include breweries like Rock Bottom. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, brew pubs, not kind of what you think of maybe as the, the typical craft brewery now. I think now we're up to 80-ish in greater Cincinnati. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I probably haven't been to half of them. And, yeah. and right, I, I'm in the industry. And then, uh, you know, there's we're now probably close to 9,000 across the U.S. So it's absolutely changed quite a bit. I think for the better, though, I think it's it's requiring us and other breweries to be a lot smarter about what we're doing, a lot more intentional, because it was a little bit, I don't want to call it a gold rush, but it was kind mm-hmm. of, if you build it, they will come, you know, 10 years ago. And that's certainly not the case now. And I'm okay with that, because I think that uh, that's a fun challenge. So. It seems like the industry has kind of grown up; that it has yeah. evolved. How, how do you how do you stay Mad Tree when there's so many other brewers coming out, you know, doing different unique beers? What, do you, what does yep. Mad Tree do to stay relevant and and unique and and fresh? Yeah, so I think it's it's a little hard to detach. Maybe my personal journey with the Mad Tree journey. I will say we probably hit about 2018, 19. We were growing like crazy. Frankly, when we launched, right, we had this business plan that you can kind of throw out the door on day one because everything changes. But the all the components of what we wanted to be were there. About 2017, 18, even into 19, I personally started to feel like a little lost with where the business was going. And maybe a little bit personally, like, what's my role? You know, we, we had this vision of creating this cool craft beer culture. Check. Oh, shit, what do we do now? So we, we did a lot of spent a lot of like introspection time talking to our employees, surveying the market, reading a lot of books. I took a three and a half month sabbatical and just read a shit ton. And I, when we, when we kind of came back together on it, that's when we started kind of driving towards a more purpose-driven brand. All of it was in our original business plan. We were just kind of holding on to the business for the first five years. And I think we, I don't want to say we'd gotten lost, but I think we kind of forgot, you know, a lot of the core. And that's really where you know, we have a, re- a very strange purpose for a brewery. We exist to connect people to nature and each other, which is kind of strange. We talk a lot about being bigger than beer. All right, that's why we just came out with Sway. We're very intentional about leading with being a hospitality company because, you know, spaces 10 years ago when you would have a tap room, you almost had a tap room to, like, sell more beer and distro. That's kind of how people thought about it. But that model's kind of completely getting flipped on its side right now. So we've got to make sure we're taking care of consumers. We're listening to consumers. We certainly didn't have that attitude 10 years ago. It was very mm. irreverent of like, we make good beer, you'll come and drink it and you'll like it. <laughs> but all those things, I think, were components. So as we've kind of uh, figured out who we are, I think we have a larger purpose, which to me is super fun because as we now look at what we can do the next 10 years, right, we talk about purpose in every pour being bigger than beer and a company that exists to connect. And we're like, man, this, there's a really, this is a, this is a huge uh, palette to play with. So I'm I'm pretty excited about where we're where we're gonna take this thing. So that's the short answer, I guess. Yeah, tell me how how, how some of that stuff manifests. Cause I know you guys have have long been part of that. Was it one percent for the planet? Yep. And then uh, been known for kind of urban. 
what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you guys have planted a ton of trees. Tons it, of trees, yeah. <laughs> in keeping with the name. Yep. I mean, so, so what does that look like for you, that purpose? Yeah, I mean, you go back to our original business plan, it's all there, right? It's the reason we put beer in cans, right? Better for the environment, more likely to be recycled, less shipping weight. You know, I think as we, as those first five years we were kind of holding on, we almost took this like portfolio approach to our community impact work. So it's like, we got to give a little bit of money to the dog people and a little bit of money to the tree people. And we just kind of spread it everywhere. We'd realize it's like, we're not really making an impact. We're just kind of dropping, you know, pennies in these little ponds and it's not really making much of a ripple. So that's when we kind of came back together. A lot of it, I kind of mentioned Patagonia. That was a big inspiration uh, for us. It continues to be uh, for me personally to this day. And I think how they really lead with purpose and what they're doing has been pretty, pretty aspirational. But I think, you know, 1% for us was very simply, how do we, all the money stays local, but it's just kind of a mechanism to help us kind of guide our giving. So Right, most of our most of our money and time goes to Cincinnati Parks. We have a great relationship with them. We usually do a project, generally in the urban environment, where we get you know 100 plus employees out planting trees, doing cleanup, cleaning up some really cool parks. We've got great relationships with Groundworks ORV. Um, they've got a beautiful mission of how they kind of tie environmental sustainability with also getting like inner city kids out, paying them to, to get out and volunteer, or not volunteer, they pay them, but to get out and beautify parks and we'll work side by side with them. Great relationships with the zoo. Rothenburg Rooftop Garden down in OTR is a really, if you've never been on the rooftop there, it's just absolutely beautiful, but they have an urban le- learning garden that we volunteer at every year to basically kind of get it ready for the kids and then kind of put it to bed for the winter. So. So there, there's kind of a lot that we're doing, but, and then even our, you know, that, that bleeds into our, our expansion strategy too. So as we talk about being consumer centric and being bigger than beer, right, we come out with a vodka soda like Sway where, you know, we look at the market and the only thing really out there is, at least in this space is high noon. There's a lot more new entrants coming. We have a lot of people who come to the tap room who don't want to drink beer or don't like beer. And we need to make sure that we've got a product for them. That's also where you think about alcove was very intentional of like kind of how do we take nature to the urban environment Mm -hmm. and kind of show a little bit of a different side of madry we are looking at what's next for us so there will be a a new location and that will probably be more how do we go out into more of a natural environment Hmm. so so yeah lots lots of fun stuff on the on the horizon yeah so alcove was a a pretty unique thing for a brewery because every time you hear about breweries expanding it's usually either another production facility or another tap room yep. or a brew pub and yep. it's all about the beer but with alcove it was i mean still there's very much the presence of the beer but yep. it's much more than that yeah and this is where i and this i, I don't want to sound critical of other breweries but this is where i think that old school mindset is not going to serve a lot of breweries well i think a lot of breweries tend to think about expansion I mean, any brewery gets uh, an email once a week from a new developer in some sort of place who's basically, they're building a bunch of condos. They want to put a brewery there because it attracts people and they look cool and they can sell their condos. I think what a lot of breweries do is they look at these opportunities and they're like, cool, metal building. I'll go slap my logo up, sell my beer, and it'll work. I don't think that's being very consumer-centric, intentional, and I don't know that you're necessarily adding anything to the neighborhood. Like us trying to do a smaller version of what we do in Oakley down in OTR, that wouldn't have resonated, I don't think, for anyone. So we looked at it and we said, how do we complement the neighborhood? 
as you look at our space, just from a design standpoint, it's a very different space than I think what you're typically used to in OTR, as well as like right trying to bring in more kind of farm to table, sustainable, kind of thoughtful dishes. Um, and I think it complements the neighborhood really well. So I, I think there's just, I think there's a lot of thought that needs to go into expansion and we certainly want to be around. We want to last. So. Yeah, I want to uh, jump into something you just said there in a second, but how'd you guys get hooked up with Chef Stephen Williams? Yeah, we've admired Stephen for a long time. Stephen is no longer kind of involved with us. He kind of helped us get the restaurant open, but we still have a great relationship with him. I, his, his ethos is just, it's completely, I think, on brand with who we are and who we want to be, and I respect the absolutely hell out of the guy. And I think just eating at Bouquet very often and seeing what he did with Spoon, we were like, holy cow, this is this is the guy that kind of makes sense because frankly at the time too, we didn't, we didn't have competency in food um, Hmm. and we needed a lot of help. Now we're growing that side of our business pretty quickly with Alcove. Um, But Stephen was absolutely critical to getting it open. So yeah, bouquet, my wife's vegan and it's one of the few places where you can actually get like thoughtful, well-crafted vegan food. That is just an afterthought. Yep. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm, my wife is vegan. I call myself vegan-ish, which means I'm mostly vegan, but every once in a while I decide I'm not. Yeah. And if there's uh, bacon available, right? <laughs> you know, it's weird for me that the things I like to cheat with are generally like uh, like uh, chicken wings or like, you hmm. know, greasy pizza. So hot dogs, stupid stuff like that. I, I love the buffalo chicken pizza at Catch a Fire. Yeah. Yeah, they do, they do a fantastic job. So, so we... With what you're talking about with thoughtful expansion, as you said, you guys were like number eight on the scene in Cincinnati, yep. and now there are 10 times that many breweries. I have to imagine that the model of build it and they will come doesn't really work unless you only want to be a neighborhood brewery, a yep. watering hole. So when when you're thinking about what expansion looks like, what are the, the different things you're examining? Yeah, I think certainly looking at demographic lifestyle in the area given this bent towards, and not a bent, it's in our purpose, but given that we want to be closer to nature, we're absolutely looking at spots where we can spread out and we can, I think we do a really nice job with all of our spaces. And with with Oakley, I'm not sure how intentional it was. With Alco, it was very intentional, but just creating like indoor outdoor space. Mm. So, you know, I think some of the most beautiful places on a nice day that you can be indoors in Cincinnati and outdoors is at both of our locations, just because we have big garage doors that open and a greenhouse and glass roofs and the way that we can just kind of like bring the outside into our spaces is really cool and with this next space we absolutely want to kind of explode that and I think we're also like you know we want to attract probably a consumer that's not necessarily coming to our locations Hmm. you know and I do think with you know it's kind of funny like four years ago as, as we were actually starting to look at expansion, we hadn't decided we were going to go to OTR yet. We had an agency that was working with us, and they went down to Pendleton and was asking them, oh, yeah, so what do you think about, you know, Mad Tree, the local brewery? And a few of the people that they were asking, I think they were at, um, I heard some bar down in, like, Pendleton. I can't remember exactly what. It might have been, like, Lucius Q or something. And they were, um, some people were like, Mad Tree's not local. Like, Rheingeist is local. Or, you know, this brewery in OTR is local. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> like, that's how, that's how small this circle is being drawn. So, you know, I will tell you, and, and we have okay data on this, but we're, we're not necessarily getting people who are coming to us from Loveland or Westchester or Mason or a lot of the West Side because there's so many breweries that they're, that they're serving. 
we probably, I mean, it's a big space, so we're drawing from everywhere, but still our core, and if you look at our repeat business, we're really, we're mainly attracting from with kind of a five mile radius hmm. um, because convenience is huge. I mean, I know for me personally, I kind of stay in my own little bubble and I think a lot of Cincinnati kind of does that. So for us, I think, you know, the opportunities locally, I think are, they're huge. I mean, you can think of all the, the great neighborhoods and also knowing that, right, like I think we do a nice job attracting millennials. We do a great job with families. We do a great job with the business community. So those are all spaces that we, we kind of want to continue to lean in. So we're kind of talking to, you know, similar consumers. I think if we were to try to go off and attract a brand new consumer, that, that doesn't necessarily align with what we're trying to do. So so expansion, would you look more at the Cincinnati market versus jumping to a Cleveland or an Indianapolis? Yeah. I mean, our the rough blueprint, I don't know if we're going to follow this now. The, the rough blueprint was open two concepts here, the urban concept and the suburban concept, if you want to call it that. And then it was, if we think one of those two concepts really has legs, let's look at a city like maybe Columbus or Louisville or Cleveland. Uh, I'm from Northeast Ohio, so I always kind of just keep my, my, my eye up there. But uh, that, that was kind of the rough game plan. I don't know that we want to expand outside of local, though. I, mm. I just I think as this thing's like blowing up, we just have we have so much momentum here that I'm not really sure that I want to try to reinvent the wheel outside of here. So I, I don't know. I think we'll figure that out after the next space. We're getting ready to jump into our strategic planning cycle. You know, we kind of have roughly the high-level game plan mapped out till about 2025. What well, we got to figure out kind of what's after that. So. So a, a brewery that really embraces nature, I mean, what does that look like in terms of this, the, what you guys are kind of hoping for for your next location? Yeah, I mean, I think it, very simply, and I don't, I don't want this to sound cheap, it's just a lot of greenery. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what we did at Alcove, and we're starting to do that at, in Oakley. You're seeing a lot more of that come in. And there's just lots of, like, calming effects, and it's just it's pleasant to be around, and I think it just improves people's moods. So I think that's a simple thing. And I think the other thing is, is how, do, how, how can you think about you might go for a hike or you might walk a trail or you might go to a dog park or you might go to a uh, take your kid out to do something out in nature. And then our space is very close to that mm. where you can come and hang out with us. You know, I've I've been obsessed with and and not to give too much away. We haven't found a location in this area yet, but I've been obsessed with looking at the Little Miami River. Um, to be really frank, I love what like Little Miami Brewing's doing. I just think that spot is beautiful, just in terms of its location being kind of downtown Loveland. Plus, they have the river right there. And every time I go there and I see people kayak up and get off their kayaks and go drink a beer, I'm not gonna lie, I get super jealous because yeah. I'm like, ah, that should be Madry. But uh, yeah, so I, I think it looks like how do we how do we kind of blur the lines between where you recreate and where you right consume beer and food and bring your family and have fun. So. Yeah, uh, my wife and I are really big into hiking, and it's always kind of a reward after a, a long hike to go to a brewery. Yeah, and there. So, so when you when you first said that, my first thought was like, oh, like, like locating you this insane nature center or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and we've. I hope I'm not sharing anything I, I shouldn't. You know, we've brought it up to Cincinnati Parks, like mm-hmm. about like could there be something here? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I, I don't know. I have looked out east a lot, not necessarily close to the nature center, although I absolutely do love that place. But yeah, we've we, we've kind of we've looked all across the city. So, so how how have you seen uh, beer drinkers' tastes change over the years? Because my own personal journey it was very much like I discovered um, 
Dogfish Head 90-minute IPA. And I was like, oh, wow, I like IPAs now. And every time I go to a brewery, I'd rather IPA. Now it's to the point where, like, I saw you guys had, like, a margarita ale on yeah. Draft Lafts last time I was there. Or I just I go in and I order the most interesting thing I can see on the menu, like an horchata ale. Yep. Yeah, man, it's – I think the popularity – you know, craft beer really up until the pandemic has been stealing share of alcohol for a while. That is starting to reverse a little bit. I think just economic conditions, people are trading down a little bit. It's hard to say. I do think there is a there is a healthy movement that is very real. It's real in my life. Like I personally experience it. I drink more non-alcoholic beer in the last six months than I ever have in my entire life. Mm. And that's something we've played around with at Madtree to varying levels of success. But I think we're seeing people come in. That's why Sway does so well for us. It's 90 calories. It's pretty much the lowest calorie kind of alcoholic drink you can get on the market, lower calorie than like High Noon or White Claw. So certainly there's a lot of health play in there. I do think there is a bit of, I find myself personally a little bit of the opposite where you were saying, when I go to a, a new place, I generally want to try like the most standard thing on the menu, especially when I'm trying new breweries. Like I can tell a lot about a brewery with like their lager. Like just, you know, a beer that you can't really hide anything and and, um, that. So I'm finding myself, I'm actually becoming probably a little less adventurous than I I used to. And, and, you know, we have mocktails and non-alcoholic options, both at Alcove and and Oakley. Those are absolutely picking up for us. So I think health is real. People still obviously want to experiment, and we still have a lot of fun with that. We're having a lot of fun with lagers and dark lagers. We won two gold medals this year at, at kind of the top two pr- most prestigious awards for our Oktoberfest lager and legendary lager. We've got a Dunkel on that's great right now. Ziegler has won the Oktoberfest. So, yeah, so it's still all over the place, I guess. Yeah. And then, so you were in our, our 40 under 40 in 2021, and you said that. Barely slid in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you were 39 at the time, so <laughs> it was right under the wire. And you said that you wanted to, to hike the Appalachian Trail before 50. Yeah. Is that, that going to happen? I don't know. So it's interesting. I Before the pandemic, I had actually, I think I'd set aside that I was going to do it in like 2021 or 2022. So I was like, I was pretty serious about trying to figure out how to do it. And then I, I kind of my passions have moved on. However, that being said, I just joined a Facebook group for Appalachian Trail hikers, and a lot of the trail hikers start now. If you're doing south to, if you're doing either one, but south to north, you generally want to start about mid to end of February, early March. That's kind of the best weather conditions to get up to Maine by, you know, before it gets too hot. So I don't know. I'm starting to get re-interested in that. It's a huge commitment, right? It's three and a half months. I have three young kids. A business so I don't know it feels it feels a bit selfish but it's it's still it's still sitting out there somewhere it's it's also hard to I'm, I'm a big fly fisherman so I'm kind of like really like diving into that hard so trips up to Michigan or Tennessee those are kind of the two places where you can do like good kind of native trout fishing kind of within a six or seven mile radius um, but even locally getting out in a little Miami or going over to Brookville so that's also been a passion that's Maybe I don't want to say replace the urge for the Appalachian Trail, but it's kind of been my nature nature uh, thing. Was was part of that the pandemic itself? Because I know for myself personally, having that change in what I was able to do and what I wanted to do was very relevant during that time frame of everybody was at home. Both my kids were at home all the time, and we just really 
and we stopped doing all the organized sports and things like that, and we really shifted what was important. Was that part of that for you? Well, that, that's exactly how I picked it up. You know, I, that and baking bread, which I think the rest of the world did, <laughs> which I don't do anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, we did. We, we have this little program at Mad Tree. It's called Grow Each Other. So if you just want to learn something, it's a $50, $50 budget. I mean, it's small. But if you want to learn something, we'll pay for you to go to learn whatever you want. So we had a few people that wanted to learn how to fly fish. This was probably early to mid-2020, so not too long after the pandemic. And we had Delamere and Hopkins took us out on the um, uh, on the Little Miami River. We probably had 11 or 12 employees, and we went out there, and we all kind of learned how to fly fish. And that's what yeah, that's where it caught on for me. So since then, it's kind of been diving pretty deep into it. So Awesome. Yeah. Bree, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Buff Folds is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, joined by Tom Demeropoulos. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another edition of Buffalo Folds.